Good morning, Victory Point. For me, uh, sciatic pain. Anybody had sciatic pain down there? Oh, man. Not that it hurts that much at one particular time, but like over six months I had sciatica and it was not, not enjoyable. But um, hey, good morning. We're going to uh, continue our series called Practicing His Presence. Um, it's kind of our post-Easter series to help us focus in on how do we live life as disciples who discipline themselves after, after Jesus. Because the life of a disciple um, is not lived by accident. It doesn't just come naturally to any of us. We're actually working against uh, what Paul calls our flesh, our human uh, you know, sinfulness. We're actually working against that with the Holy Spirit, collaboration with the Holy Spirit. We're, we're trying to follow after Jesus, listen to what he says, and, and, and do it. And so it requires some discipline. That uh, discipleship requires discipline. And so we want to prepare our hearts for spiritual growth. A spiritual discipline, Matt kind of talked about this last week a little bit, a spiritual discipline is, is any activity that can help me gain power to live as Jesus taught and modeled it. And I'd add something a little bit additional to that. I think there's something regular or predictable uh, about spiritual disciplines, that it's not something that we just do you know, here and there, but a spiritual discipline is really best... Um, utilized in our faith when it's consistent or when it's predictable, it's regular, it becomes a part of our lives, it becomes part of our habit. And as we form our habits, we, we realize that our, our desires are pointing more towards God and we realize that our, our actions and our beliefs are actually more in line with what God, where God wants them and we become a picture of God's kingdom uh, transformation on earth. Um, and so the first week we were in this series, uh, we talked about... Um, we talked about reading our Bibles, about the scriptures, how they, they ought to have uh, preeminence in our lives as the way that we uh, orient our lives around God's word. And then last week, Matt talked about giving, talked about, um, you know, the, the love of money is really the root of all kinds of evil. And, and so when we give, we really break ourselves free from that idolatry towards money, and we end up leveraging it towards kingdom purposes, and we free our hearts from the bondage uh, that money has on it. And this week, I want to talk about a spiritual discipline that we don't usually talk about. And so it's been a little bit of a struggle to figure out how do we, how do we talk about this together um, because uh, it's not in our common language. But I want to introduce us to a, a spiritual discipline that helps us move through suffering, that helps us move through pain, which is um, universal to the human experience. It's universal not just to the human experience, it's universal to all of creation is experiencing suffering. Um, scripture says creation is in bondage to decay and is, in gr- is groaning, and uh, we are groaning along with it. And so human pain and suffering is universal. But how do we move through it together as disciples? How do we bear it faithfully and well? Do we try to escape it? Do we try to get rid of it? Do we just accept it? Um, and the spiritual discipline I want to introduce us to is the spiritual discipline of lament. And so as we go into that, uh, we're going to read from Mark um, chapter 15, verses 25 through 34. I'll bring that up on the screens. But before we read that, let me offer a prayer. Jesus, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our teacher. And may your glory be our first and only concern this morning. Pray that um, the meditations of my heart, the meditations of our hearts, 
would be pleasing to you, God. And that as we turn towards your scriptures, that you would bring to life in us the things that need to be brought to life and that you'd put to death the things that need to be put to death, that we may be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want you to turn to Mark 15, 25 through 34, and I'll be reading it. It's on the screens as well. It was nine in the morning when they crucified Jesus. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't even save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see Jesus suffering on the cross. All the suffering in the world is coming upon him. And Jesus is suffering alone. The teachers of the law, the religious people, the soldiers, even the people who are crucified in the left and right of him are all throwing insults at him, mocking him, adding to the suffering. And as I look at this story, I, I wonder, where are Jesus' disciples? Where are the ones who are closest to him? They followed him for three years faithfully. And Jesus even told them that there would be a cross. He prepared them for it. The night before, he was even preparing them for it. And he taught them that greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. That the greatest love, the greatest expression of love is being able to lay your life down for someone. Not only was Jesus laying his life down, but where were the disciples when it came to laying their lives down? Where were they? They were nowhere to be seen. Scripture says that there were uh, three women who were his disciples who showed up. Three women. Out of the hundreds and thousands of people who followed him during his life, there were three people who were standing by his side. Where was everyone else? Why weren't the disciples there? I'm guessing they were probably scared. Not only scared that the same fate that happened to Jesus would happen to them, which it ends up that would be the case, that they weren't able to escape that after all. They all were persecuted in their own lives, and almost all of them were martyrs. So they were afraid of meeting Jesus' fate, um, but they were also, I think, afraid of, of the suffering just watching Jesus go through that suffering. I think they were afraid of even looking at their best friend being crucified, their master, their rabbi being crucified. And they didn't want to, they, they couldn't look. They had to look away. They had to run away. And I wonder what I would have done in that situation. Would I have been there at the cross? Would any of us have been there if it came down to it? And I have to think, probably no. If none of those disciples were there who had seen Jesus in the flesh were there, I probably wouldn't have either. And it made me think, isn't that what we do in the world? How we run away from suffering. That we see suffering in the world, whether it's global, like uh, wars, 
or uh, natural disasters like tornadoes or hurricanes or flooding, uh, earthquakes, volcanoes. Um, The suffering in the world is immense. You have disease spreading throughout the world. You have um, sea levels rising. You have um, crops failing. And the world's poor are disproportionately affected by all of this. They get caught in the crossfire. And where's the church? Many of us are, do pay attention to that and we, we enter in, but many of us turn a blind eye and we can afford to because many of us who live in the West can afford to turn our eyes from the suffering in the world. And we can afford to distract ourselves by other things. Not only in the, the world, but personally we experience suffering, whether it's a relationship that's falling apart, a marriage that's coming to divorce, kids who are far away or wandering away whether it's a job loss or whatever it is in our lives that's causing us suffering, many of us turn away from our own suffering and uh, we'll numb ourselves through uh, you know, addictions or through um, alcohol or drugs or just saying, I'm fine, you know, ignorance. I'm fine. I'm having a great day. You know, things are going really well. I have some great plans in the future, but internally things are really messed up. And we kind of just brush over it or numb ourselves to it. And what I know is that pain that is not transformed is transmitted. So we really can't avoid the suffering. We end up just passing it on to somebody else. And we end up making um, fools out of other people. We're making, we put shame on other people or we pass our suffering on to other people. And that's exactly what we did to Jesus. That Jesus saw the suffering in the world at the fall and saw that creation was crying out. And Jesus did not turn away. He didn't turn a blind eye. He didn't just stay in heaven. He became a baby, subjected himself to the suffering of the world. And he entered in. He saw the cross coming and he walked straight towards it. He saw the heart of human suffering in the cross and he didn't go to the right or to the left. He walked straight at it. He didn't avoid it. He embraced it. And he dragged it down to hell to keep it there in order to redeem it. And he said, this is, suffering is not going to be, have an end anymore. It's not going to be a dead end any longer. It's going to be the pathway to new birth. Suffering is going to be the pathway towards new creation. That in this world, you will have troubles. But take heart, I have overcome the world, he says. He has overcome it by his blood. When we made him the victim of our violence, when we made him the scapegoat of our shame, Jesus bore that. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But the the iniquity that we laid upon him brought us peace and healing. By his stripes we are healed. He redeemed suffering, so it was no longer a dead end, but a, a pathway towards new creation. If creation was a prison that we were all stuck in, and, and bonded in until, until our decay, until our death, Jesus transformed that prison into a hospital where we find healing. If creation um, was, was suffering and pressure, Jesus transformed that pressure and suffering and pain into the birth pains of new creation so that our suffering leads towards our new birth. Uh, today is Mother's Day. Matt mentioned that already. And it's a day that we first and foremost celebrate the women who gave birth to us. That's something that unites us, is that the thing that we share in common in this room is all of us was, were born to a woman, a, a woman who's willing to be a mother. 
and was willing to give us the gift of birth. And as a baby in the, in the womb, the baby doesn't know that they're about to receive new birth. They just experience intense pain and suffering, most likely. They're feeling the contractions or they're being, being pulled into the new world, and it's uncomfortable, but they receive new birth. And that's what Jesus has done on the cross. Uh, Romans 8, 22 through 23 illustrates this really well. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. That is to say that all of creation was bonded to decay. It was, we were set on the course for destruction to our own death through suffering. But Jesus turned all that pain into the pains of childbirth, that, that as Christ has taken on all the suffering in the world, he's redeemed it for new creation. Jesus has transformed our suffering into labors, the pain of labor contraction. He bore our suffering and redeemed it by suffering on the cross. But my question is, how did he do it? How did Jesus do it? Because it's one thing to preach about, you know, the new creation. One thing to preach about the cross, to say, come pick up your cross and follow me when you're standing on a hill in Galilee It's another thing to say, pick up your cross and follow me when you're letting people crucify you on Golgotha. When you're saying, this is the way, this is your future. If you want to follow me, this is what it involves. It's one thing to say there's resurrection from the dead. It's another thing to turn to the thieves on your right and your left and say, today you'll be with me in paradise. How did Jesus not flinch in that moment? How did he bear the suffering of the whole world on the cross? without escaping it. At the center of the cross, Jesus cried out. If you remember those words, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the same way that each of us comes out into our own birth crying for the first time, that's the first action we take into the world is, is, the, is a cry. Jesus cries out on the cross, on the cusp of his new birth, on the cusp of his resurrection, he cries out, says, Lema Sabathani, why have you forsaken me? Jesus did not invent these words. These are not unique to him. He's borrowing words from an ancient psalm. It's a psalm of lament. And just like if I said, um, if I was telling a story and told you that someone sang Amazing Grace, you would know they didn't just sing the words Amazing Grace, they would sing the whole song, right? You'd, amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. You'd, you'd fill the rest in. In the same way, these are the first lines of Psalm 22. It would have referenced for the first hearers that Jesus is actually reciting or even singing Psalm 22 in its entirety. And I want to read you the Psalm 22, some excerpts from it, and show you what Jesus was saying on the cross. My God, my God, why did you dump me miles from nowhere? Doubled up with pain, I call to God all the day long. No answer, nothing. I keep it all night, tossing and turning. And you, are you indifferent above it all, leaning back on the cushions of Israel's praise? We know you were there for our parents. They cried for your help, and you gave it. They trusted and lived a good life. And here I am, nothing, an earthworm, something to step on. 
to squash. Everyone pokes fun at me. They make faces at me. They shake their heads. Let's see how God handles this one. Since God likes him so much, let him help him. Don't let them cut my throat. Don't let these mongrels devour me. If you don't show up soon, I'm done for. Gored by the bulls, meat for the lions. Here's a story I'll tell my friends when they come to worship and punctuate it with hallelujahs. Shout hallelujah, you God-worshippers. Give glory, you sons of Jacob. Adore him, you daughters of Israel. He has never let you down. Never look the other way when you are being mocked and kicked around. He has never wandered off to do his own thing. He has been right there, listening. All the power mongers are before him, worshiping. All the poor and powerless, too, worshiping. All those who never got it together, worshiping. Our children and their children will get in on this as the world is passed along from parent to child. Babies not yet conceived will hear the good news that God does what he says. Psalm 22 is a psalm that Jesus learned as a child, and it was a psalm of lament. In Psalms of lament, uh, lament literally means a, a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. That's the dictionary definition of a lament. It can also mean a wail, moan, complain. And the Psalms of lament are Psalms that bring a complaint before God, honestly, to say, God, things are not the way they should be. And you're the one who's supposed to fix it, so fix it already. And when you do, we will proclaim your name. We will proclaim your praises. We have hope that once you have done it, um, there will, your glory, we'll, we'll give you your glory. And laments have uh, three, so laments have three main parts. And fourth is like a bonus part. They don't, not all of them have this fourth uh, section. But a lament, lament involves complaining to God, uh, turning to God, and asking God for help. Uh, the prophets lamented all the time. Jeremiah and, um, and Isaiah would, would have been uh, lamenting the sins and the suffering of their people and bringing it before God. And what God did was he invited the prophets into God's throne room to bring their petitions and requests before him. And they would level complaints hard against God. Say, it's gone on long enough, Lord. Relieve the suffering of your people. And God would weigh that in his throne room. In his infinite wisdom, he would weigh that and take it into consideration. And oftentimes, it would steer the heart of God. God would change his mind based on the complaints of his people. Lament is a powerful tool. It's a powerful prayer. And it's what Jesus prayed on the cross. That's, in many ways, what accomplished our salvation was the fact that Jesus was able to pray, pray a prayer of lament on the cross and not waver from the suffering, but bear it faithfully. He fully bore our sin and our suffering. So first, first a psalm of lament. A lament involves complaining. And I want to teach you I want to teach us about a lament this morning. And after I'm done teaching about lament, I want to give us an opportunity to lament together. So we start off with a complaint. And a complaint is an honest cry out to God about the reality of our situation. We experience suffering in our own bodies. We experience uh, injustice in our communities. We experience violence and um, unsettledness in the world. Things are not the way they should be. From personally to communally to, to all the way out into globally, things are not the way they should be. 
And when we complain, we bring that before God. Some of us in here are angry at God. Some of us in here are angry, period. We see the injustice in the world or we see injustice in our own lives and we're angry about it. But so often we keep that stuffed away, don't we? We don't bring that before God in prayer. We kind of just bottle it up. The lament says, things should not be this way. I'm angry about this. Um, even, even in lament, in this complaint section, we, uh, psalmists will rage against their enemies. They'll say, if only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from you, bloodthirsty men, that we bring all of our cries uh, to God. But we have a problem with this, don't we? I mean, we have an issue with bringing our, our suffering, our complaint back to God. And I think it's because we're afraid to, that, that we'd rather believe in a God who generally cares about us, but doesn't really know what's going on. Because it's a risk to tell God what our true complaints are, isn't it? To say, God, this really bothers me. Because now we know that God knows. And now if we know God knows and nothing is done about it, well, that breaks our trust in God. Does our faith begin to shatter now? Because we've complained about something that he hasn't fixed yet. So either God is ignorant, he's powerful enough to fix it, and he's ignorant, or he can't fix it, and he's weak. Which one is it? I want to suggest that this is actually a false dichotomy, that this is not the God that we see in Scripture. The Bible actually champions people of faith who bring their complaints to God, who say, this is wrong in the world, and I'm willing to wrestle with God until it's made right. That's what our heroes of Scripture do. That's what the prophets did. That's what Abraham, Moses, David, Job all do. They, they bring their complaint to God, and they wrestle with him about it. They say, this is really bothering him. I'm not going to let me let it go until this is dealt with, even if that means I'm complaining about it until the day I die. That's what these prophets do. And yes, our faith does get shattered when we do this. <laughs> it gets shattered. But the faith that gets shattered was actually kind of a weak faith, wasn't it? Faith that rested on God being an ignorant God who just genuine, generally cares about us but doesn't actually help. And when we complain, when we lament, it shatters that weak faith. And in its place grows a stronger faith. A faith in a God that we can um, spar with. A faith in a God that we can wrestle with. And complain with, we can petition. And so that's what, that's what happens in lament, is we bring it before God. And just like a mother giving birth to a child who knows a contraction is coming, who's feeling the pain, when we lament, it's like, it's like that woman giving the push into birth. It's like working together with the pain to bring new creation about, that we become uh, collaborators with God in the new thing that he wants to do. That we complain and when we, when we moan, when we cry out, when we wail to God about the things that are going on, it's like pushing along with God into new creation. That's what's happening. The second part of lament is a turning to God. And when we turn to God, we say, God, you are my sole defender. You're the one who can handle this. See that in Jesus on the cross. He, he turns to God and said, you did this with my ancestors. People in the past, they, they had troubles and you saved them. What about me? Jesus is saying, you're the one who's supposed to fix this. And I'm not going to retaliate. He's not gonna, Jesus doesn't take actions to react or retaliate to the people who are crucifying him. He leaves it in God's hands. And in lament, we turn to God and we say, you are my sole defender. 
But so often, we don't turn to God. We keep it to ourselves. We, we don't complain to God, and then we don't turn to God, and we say, I'll handle it myself. It's just a little problem. I'll fix it. But we know that pain that is not transformed is transmitted. What we actually end up doing is passing that suffering and pain onto somebody else. We end up making the problem worse than it was in the first place. So when we turn to God and lament, we're actually trusting in God's sovereignty, that he's much, a much bigger God than we typically think of him. He can handle it. And God can handle our complaints. We don't have to brush them over. Um, my friend was uh, telling me about a Jewish rabbi that he was talking to who said, um, you, guys, you Christians are way too nice to God. <laughs> that We just let him have it. And uh, that's really a trust in God's sovereignty, that the God who created the cosmos can handle our complaints, that we can yell at God and say, this isn't right. He can handle it. We allow him to be the sovereign one. We, can, we are way too nice to God, and we, he can handle it. He can take our complaints, so we can turn to him. And the third part of every lament is asking God for help, that we say, God, this is what's bothering me, and you're the one who's supposed to fix it, and here's exactly what I want you to do to fix it. You notice Jesus on the cross says, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's a request. God, forgive them. Isn't that amazing that that's his request to fix the situation is not get me down off this cross, but forgive them. But many of us, um, when it comes to asking for things, we're on one side or the other of a, of a spectrum. Either we say, I don't, I don't need anything. <laughs> I just you know, meet the needs of these other people or fix this other situation. If you just fix this other situation, everything will be fine. It's not about me. And it's this false humility that's actually really, really prideful. It says, I don't need anything. It's like saying to God, I'm perfect. I'm not part of the problem. If everything else was fixed, then it would be fine because I'm fine. Either we're that way or our prayers are all about me, me, me. Give me this, give me that. Fix me, help me, save me. It becomes an individualized faith that has nothing to do with the world around us. I want to suggest that that's another false dichotomy, that our suffering and the needs that we request are actually connected to all of the creation. So this last week, notice that anybody else have dandelions growing in their yard? Yeah. Okay, it was this unique week where you had these beautiful yellow flowers coming out of your lawn. Me, I had many yellow flowers coming out of my lawn. And it was right in between, like, them blooming, and they're just starting to get those seeds and starting to blow. I'm like, if we don't pull up all these dandelions... Not only is my yard going to be covered in dandelions, but I'm noticing that the, the edge of my neighbor's yard that's downwind from me, just right along my, his grass is great. But then the little strip that's right next to me is starting to grow dandelions in it. I'm like, okay, I know exactly where those came from. They came from my yard. So we started pulling weeds, and I started to think, hey, this is a way that I'm loving my neighbor. I'm pulling up weeds. I'm pulling up weeds in my own yard, but I'm doing so in part because I know if they start to bloom, I mean... It's one thing, I don't care. I can handle my own dandelions. It's okay, they're pretty flowers. But if my neighbor gets dandelions, that's not very kind of me, is it? So pulling up dandelions is a way that I'm actually loving my neighbor. Our suffering is universal, but also our healing is universal. That when we ask God to heal me, to take care of me, we do so with an awareness that the healing God has for us 
is part of the healing that he wants to do in all of creation. That when he heals us, we become more generous and kind people who can then transmit that healing to the world. That we ask for healing so that God's kingdom can come through us. Say, return, return, uh, return heal me from, and send me back into my home from the hospital so that I can serve my neighbors, that I can love my neighbors, right? That we are interconnected with the rest of creation and that, that since our suffering is at the core of our humanity, so is our healing. And that when God heals us, it's part of the healing he wants to do in all of creation, to bring his new creation. Also, when we pray for the needs around us, we realize that we are implicated in that as well. That if I'm going to pray for um, the environment, for example, if I'm going to pray for the healing environment, I have to realize that I play a role in that. If I, if I want to pray for injustice in my city, I'm going to have to realize that I, I play a role in that. And I ask, God, as you heal the world around me, what role do I have to play in that? How can I be part of the healing that you want to do? So they're interconnected, praying for others and praying for ourselves. We pray for both and realizing that the two are connected. So that our prayers for our internal needs are actually not selfish prayers. And the prayers for the external needs are, are, are also ways that we involve ourselves. We don't, get to, we don't get off the hook. We're all connected. So our staff um, prays. Uh, every day the office is open. We have at 2 o'clock. I'll say it again. I said this last time I preached, but I'll say it again. If you're available at 2 o'clock, come in uh, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. Uh, come in and pray with us. We'd love to have you join us. Um, we just center ourselves around Scripture. We pray for one another. We pray for you. We pray for um, our ministry, mission partners. We pray for our various ministries. We, um, we, we pray regularly. And this week, um, it was, there were some things that happened this week that were especially uh, discouraging. Um, we heard that there was a relationship that was falling apart. Um, we, we, heard about, we heard news about um, someone who was battling through uh, depression and anxiety. Um, we also heard news of someone who we've been praying for for years who isn't, isn't getting any better and is actually getting worse. And we've been praying faithfully for years for healing. And I'm kind of sick of it. <laughs> I'm tired of it. I'm tired of praying those kinds of prayers. And I just feel like a broken record before God. Like, okay, I'm just going to pray again. So what do I do? Do I pretend like it's my first time praying that prayer? No. That would be dishonest. Do I just stop praying? No, that would be unfaithful. So we just keep praying. And we level it back to God. And we say, God, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of getting this kind of news. It's been enough. It's been long enough. Do something about it already. You're supposed to fix this kind of thing. You said that you heal people, and you haven't. So you do something about it. It's been long enough. So we did that together. That's, that's how we prayed this week. We just sat in it, and we said, we are frustrated about these things, and God, it's time you did something. We lamented. So my question this morning is, what are we lamenting today? What is it that, that has you at your heart in suffering? What is it that you're upset about, angry about, that bothers you, either in your own life that you're just tired of dealing with, you're sick and tired of it, 
or something in the world, in your community that you lament, that you cry out to God for, you wish you would just stop. What is that for you? I want to lead us um, through a time of prayer. Um, you guys uh, can, if you, have a, if you have a blank sheet of paper in front of you, um, I'd encourage you to take out a piece of paper, that piece of paper and a pen. And we're going to practice, maybe you can write your own psalm of lament. To start off just complaining to God, just flat out saying, this sucks. Level it against God and say, this is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm experiencing. This is the reality of the situation. And then turn to God and, and tell him why he's the one who should be doing something about it and not you. And then ask God for help. Lift out specifically what you want him to do to fix it. Realizing that, that there's a role that you play, whether it's God's healing for you or God's, you know, the responsibility that you play. And there's also an external reality to it. Ask God for help. And then if you can, declare God the hope that you have in God. Say, when you do this, um, here's what we want to see. Your name will be praised. Your new creation will come. Your glory will be lifted up. So why don't, let's just take a, a moment, uh, just a couple of minutes. We'll play some music, and um, we'll, we'll practice lamenting together.
I wish Jesus had just said, snapped his fingers and said, there's not going to be any more suffering. But Jesus didn't free us from suffering. He redeemed our suffering. Suffering is a required course for graduation. Jesus said, in this world there will be trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I'm going to read this last part from um, Romans 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Let's stand and let's worship God.